0: Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand International Politics podcast. I'm joined this evening by David Hood, Andrew Chen, and Mark Rickaby to talk about some of the more technical and and data-driven aspects of the current uh, and and the last eighteen months of the COVID pandemic. Welcome to the cast, all of you.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank
0: Thank you. Yeah, I. Sometimes I have uh, multiple guests on and I, I drop that one in. I'm like, oh no, everyone's going to try and do it at once. So thanks for, for managing that one. Um, yeah, it, it's been really heartening, I think, to see that a lot of the the data work happening um, in this space, especially in the last six months, perhaps, has become a lot clearer and a lot more driven towards um, a New Zealand audience from a kind of a data media point of view in the New Zealand setting. Um, I'm not so much uh, as sure about the international kind of approach of that. Uh, But David, you've been kind of doing a lot of data journalism uh, kind of type work um, with the COVID numbers. What are your feelings about that so far uh, with Uh, the current outbreak?
2: um, I'll I'll just caveat that what Kyle means by data journalism is I put a lot of graphs on Twitter.
0: Um, <laughs> hey, you know, and, it all counts. Yeah,
2: yeah. I I would say that, and I, I think the others would agree with me in this, is that there's kind of a journey from information to data to potentially useful data. Um, so when I take a, a COVID test because I've got a symptom, that's a that's my sort of personal medical information. And it's a result that's really important to me. Um, but knowing that result, the the government, um, it's a very important the government as well as personal medical information about me that has all kinds of you know, needs for protecting it and, and looking after it and things like that. And that's that's personal information, but it's not data data is is when you start chopping it up and forming it into a structure and isolating it and grouping it. With other things like that, creating an organized set of information that's organized around something you're interested in it's a slice of the world. And where it becomes useful is what you actually do with it. Um, In New Zealand, it might be the degree of response and regional things and putting in other, uh, opening up other testing clinics as a result of one possible test. In the UK, it's radically different what happens as a result of a COVID test. So, with all that, New Zealand's COVID response to me is incredibly heavily predicated on um, social cohesion and community agreement. And so much about what we do with data is to demonstrate that the processes are working and to create trust in the process rather than being about individual um, actions you might choose to do as a result of the level of positive tests in the community or something like that, that it is in more Wild West countries.
1: I just wanted to pick up on that because um, I think when we look at the population level numbers of uh, you know, number of tests that have been done, number of vaccinations and that sort of thing, I think that's totally true. Um, But I just want to contrast that with the other end of the scale, which is I think the locations of interest information or data Mm -hmm. that gets published, um, and it is incredibly individual. Um, of course, they do, you know, privacy conscious stuff around not giving away too much information. But when you've got somebody's um, occupation, gender, age, and then like the general area that they live in, and you start to figure out, oh, if they were here from 6.30 till 5 p.m., then they probably work there and all that sort of thing. That's something that's been that, that's really bugged me is like, um it is very individual that level of information that is released about the locations of interest and then um to to your point david i think that is something where people do then make individual decisions based on that data that's presented to them Um, but i definitely agree with the rest of your point around you know the 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 big numbers they get tossed around at the press conferences
0: i think that's something that's been really interesting to me um in terms of the, the different way these things are presented right there was a i think specifically last year and in some of the first um, sets of lockdowns where we started getting those locations of interests um, when Mongolian barbecue became a meme, right? Um, Why is this dude going to Mongolian barbecue like six times a week? Barbecue Uh, king. Barbecue king. Um, Yeah. I I know
1: that story because um, the the Chinese owner went on like Chinese newspapers and railed against um, the location of interest being released because they were like, Clearly, no customer comes that frequently, um, and so they said they they actually said the Ministry of Health has gotten this wrong, um, and they were demanding that the Ministry of Health like re- uh, re- help them recover their lost costs um, because they actually saw a decline in patronage afterwards. Yeah. Um, but this only ever made it at the Chinese media, so you know the rest of the country didn't find out about it.
0: That's incredible, and I guess just shows the way that the systems that people are using to interact with the information are important as well. And now it's kind of become a meme that. Um, you know the word assiduous, um, the assiduousness of um, any given uh, COVID scanner um, is something that everyone kind of waits with bated breath for uh, Dr. Bloomfield to say. But there are real concerns uh, about some of the privacy stuff. Um, and just, I guess, as a, a current news item, um, I wanted to talk to you about the Bluetooth stuff Andrew, which you have been following for, well, actually, since um, the, the thought of the tracing app came up.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> it was not a research area that I thought that I'd be picking up when I was making my plans at the beginning of
0: 2020. What's been happening more recently with that? I've just um, seen some tweets from you um, yep. today saying that I've started to release the the keys. Um, do you want to give a, a bit of a background on um, tracing apps, uh, what your concerns about them are, um, and just keep it really, really brief. Uh, yeah, I'll, it, you know, I'll do what my best. What does releasing
3: in, the keys mean? Yeah, I'll do my best. Is it like releasing the hounds?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, without it becoming a one-hour lecture. Um, so, so this Bluetooth system that we use is one that was developed by Apple and Google. And it's called the Exposure Notification Framework. And it's used in lots of places around the world, um, particularly Europe and North America, um, but also in South America, I think. Um, importantly, Australia and Singapore went on their own way and they use a different protocol. So um, the things that they do are slightly different and they have different rules. Um, And so the way that the Bluetooth works is that um, you as a person, you have Indicover Tracer on your phone, you enable Bluetooth tracing, you go around and you live your life. Um, And when your phone gets physically proximate to another phone that also has Bluetooth tracing on, they'll exchange those signals um, and they're broadcasting what are called keys, which are basically ID numbers. Um, And so they'll exchange ID numbers and say, well, I saw this ID number um, at this time. It doesn't link that to a place. It just says, uh, I heard this other phone um, and it was sort of shouting at me this loudly as a proxy for how close that phone was to you. Um, And so you just continue to live your life and your phone amasses these logs of um, Bluetooth keys. If somebody then tests positive for COVID-19, Um, What's supposed to happen is that the contact tracer will ask them to upload the keys for that device um, to a central Ministry of Health server. And multiple times a day, everyone else's phone is querying that central server for any keys that have been uploaded there. And if there are any keys there, they'll download them, check them against the log on the device. And if there's a match, then it will generate a notification to tell that user, hey, you may have been close to somebody who has now tested positive for COVID-19, you should probably isolate, you should think about getting a test, um, you should definitely call Healthline. Um, so that's that's a theory of how it's supposed to work. What happened across the last two weeks is that um, when we found out about case A on the 17th of August, um, there were some keys that were uploaded to the Ministry of Health servers, um, and those got sent out. Um, and the Ministry of Health subsequently said that that generated fewer than 10 notifications to users to say that maybe they were close contact. Um, And then for the subsequent, basically two weeks, no new keys were uploaded to the server. Um, And so there are a couple of different plausible explanations for that to happen. Um, And initially we all thought, well, maybe the technology's broken. Um, After a lot of thought and a lot of trying to figure out what's going on here, It seems that the most plausible explanation is that the contact tracers simply had decided that this information was not useful to them um, and that they were going to not ask for the Bluetooth keys to be uploaded to the Ministry of Health server. Um, And we can verify this because we can check the Ministry of Health server and we can see that there are no keys there. Um, So that was uh, sort of a a bunch of technical people who kind of spotted that this was happening over the course of the first week or so, a week and a half of the um, lockdown. Um, And as I was writing about this on Sunday morning, thinking, okay, you know, we've got, we all sent questions to the Ministry of Health, and they kind of didn't really respond. Um, And we were kind of saying, okay, this has gone on for long enough, we need to talk about this. Um, A journalist asked about it at the 1pm press briefing on Sunday. um, And suddenly, it became, "Oh, okay, more people know about this. Um, So had to sort of rush a little bit to get that writing out. Um, it got picked up by a couple of media outlets, which then meant the opposition party national got uh, found out about it um, and subsequently asked some questions in the house yesterday. Um, and then lo and behold, Bluetooth keys appeared on the server yesterday. Um, and, you know, you could say that maybe it was the media pressure and the political pressure that made it happen. I'm not quite so sure that that actually was what made the difference. I think um, there are staff inside the Ministry of Health who had figured out that this was happening. Um, and I think it's important to just draw a distinction here between the Ministry of Health and Auckland Regional Public Health Services, because the public health unit in Auckland are the people who actually do the contact tracing. Um, and so the people who designed the app in the Ministry of Health, you know, they're sitting there going, well, we can also see that there are no Bluetooth keys. What's going on? Um, and it was the contact tracers who had decided... That um, they weren't going to use that information. So I think that probably um, some instruction came centrally from the Ministry of Health to the contact tracers. They said, "Hey, you actually should be using this information. Um, It's you know could be really valuable, but also it's quite important because we've told everybody to use the system, um, and we probably should be using it. Otherwise, people will question why they're participating." Um, And and I think. One of the reasons why I I was a little bit frustrated that they weren't using it was evidence in the fact that somewhere about between 35 and 40% of adult New Zealanders had Bluetooth tracing turned on prior to the lockdown, but fewer than 10% of adults were scanning QR codes on a daily basis. And certainly anecdotally, I've heard quite a few times that people said, oh, because I've got Bluetooth on, I don't need to scan QR codes. So... You know it, it wasn't just the ministry of all the contact tracers decided oh we don't need to use this information because it's not useful it was that because we have the system that exists it may have actually compromised another source of information um, and if the decision is that bluetooth tracing is actually not useful then we should actually just turn it off entirely and nobody should use it so that people can focus on the activities that they do need to do like scanning qr codes um but it looks like they've decided that it is actually of use after all. So um, we've seen a couple of keys be uploaded to the Ministry of Health Service um, yesterday and today.
2: I think there's a point here about which, as an interested community, the discussions that we have outside of government and you know outside of these organisations um, flow socially through to, you know, inform them that, you know, people are concerned about this and things like that by having those kind of public discussions. Um, I think, yeah, essentially we're all on Twitter. We're probably all aware of the um, balance of MPs that read our tweets because, yep. they, you know, we, we spot the like messages coming up and things like that. So, you know. We are in these these issues that we thrash out as a online New Zealand community are flowing into places and informing people's thinking.
1: Yeah, I had a funny moment yesterday because uh, Chris Bishop was in the house asking that question about Bluetooth and he asked one question about, you know, why isn't it being used? And then he sent a tweet later in the afternoon They said, sorry, Andrew, I didn't get to ask about the Bluetooth thresholds. I didn't just, you know, there were too many things to ask. And mm-hmm. I wanted to reply. I didn't ask you. <laughs> <laughs> We've never had an interaction. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't say, please ask these questions, but clearly he, you know, had been reading my tweets and read the blog and um, decided that this was important enough to ask about. So, you know, thanks mm-hmm. to him really for actually bringing it up. Um, and I know David Seymour also asked about it subsequently, um, because otherwise, um, I mean, I knew, I knew that quite a few journalists did know about the issue in the sort of week beforehand, but just it, 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 it just never came up at the press briefings because there's always so much other stuff that they need to ask about, you know, vaccinations and um, MIQ, border control, um, all, all those sorts of things. And like digital contact tracing just doesn't come up that often.
0: I think that brings up a really important point um... I don't know if parallels the right road, juxtaposition perhaps, between the way that the authorities use this information and data um, and communicate it to us um, as um, the community, and then the way that we then take that information and data and turn it into something that is useful to our community. Um, and it's just really some sometimes really good turnaround on, on that feedback loop. Um, but other times, I'll, I'll see something from, from someone on Twitter who is doing uh, data visualization. I'm like, why haven't we been doing this for like a couple of years? Why, why, why wasn't this like, why didn't this come out of the ministry or out of Stats New Zealand? Um, and I think um, Hakamal Singh, you know, he's just picked up um, the data role, the head of data at the spinoff. Really great to see. Um, and he's been talking about that this week since coming on board. Um, because journalists and, and that profession at the moment and reporters aren't necessarily the always the best uh, funnel for that to the wider population.
2: I think that's one of these times where there's a bunch of different populations that the 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 people listening to radio in new zealand in the evenings or um are a different constituency to the the, the people talking things out online to some extent um, you know reading a newspaper versus etc et watching tv oh yeah i would forgotten you could watch tv um and, and all, all of that kind of thing so yeah it Ju- the, when it comes to journalism, there are, you know, all of these different audiences that, that they're trying to address.
3: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm really interested to hear the this, this contrasts um, that are coming out through this discussion, because I'm feeling really torn. Like, in one way, it sounds like the system is working really well, you know, and it really does feel like there's, there's a democracy at the core of this kind of, there's a decision-making process, there are inputs, there are these processes which kind of filter the information. And we, um, we see, you know, these questions being asked in the house and these briefings are kind of, they are actually prompting changes. But then you are kind of, there's other aspects of it that feel kind of, I feel like it's not, uh, it's, it's almost the opposite feeling I've got where it's like, how can we deal with a situation of this complexity and this kind of extraordinary sort of levels of um, of information and um, social change that's happening really fast, and people having to get on top of this flow of, of information, and it's all being funneled through these um, it's all being funneled through these press conferences or these, these stand ups, you know, at the theaterette, um, and it's really difficult. We kind of rely on the question being put to the executive at this certain point in time. And if it doesn't get put, then maybe we wait a couple of days or maybe the information doesn't come out or maybe we just don't know. So there's this kind of element of mystery and that sort of um, kind of speaks to what Andrew was saying before about we know what happened with the with the Bluetooth keys, because it's kind of visible in terms of the actual data and the interactions between these devices and what was uploaded, but we don't know why. We don't know what the decision-making process was. And I think there's kind of an element of public confidence there, as well as the element of, um, of just the contact tracing system itself. And I, you know, I think people talk about defense in depth, which is like a security concept, um, or the sort of Swiss cheese stuff that was going around as a metaphor last year. And it, it makes a lot of logical sense to have you know, multiple methods of contact tracing, multiple options multiple ways for the public to kind of make sure that there is some information about their movements that is reasonably secure and that they have some control over. And I think the Bluetooth system does a pretty good job at that. It's not just kind of leaking people's direct information, kind of like the cell phone itself really is if you're looking at it from the phone company perspective. But um, we, we just kind of, we don't really understand like what the decision-making process is kind of below the executive and like, are these systems working? Um, What's, you know, is the tip of the iceberg kind of thing? So I guess I'm like actually really confused because I just, it's not often that I kind of feel like it's really difficult to judge a situation like this, whether there are these really positive aspects to it. And there are also these really kind of frustrating like aspects where you just feel like there's this bureaucratic kind of dead weight that's just not quite, it's really hard because you're talking about this big complex social system and it's just made up of people and it's just really, really hard to nudge and kind of change systems like that uh, because it's, we're not talking about individual decisions. We're talking about organizations and kind of biases and the structures of communication flow and the way that these decisions take place so like social processes. And those can be really like impenetrable and really difficult to kind of deal with.
1: Absolutely. Like I think the information flows internally inside government are so fascinating to like, try and get a better understanding of as an outsider just trying to figure out like how does information get from say your average policy analyst up to the minister who actually has the front on tv and like the amount of briefing materials that they get and then what is actually what actually comes out is is um really interesting because like i was watching um in the house yesterday and there was one question where chris bishop asked um chris hipkins for some data and chris hipkins said oh okay uh just just let me get the right table and he had this booklet and he flipped the pages and he found the right table and gave the two numbers that chris bishop was asking for and then closed the book and i thought well what else was in that book there were all these other pages right and the right question wasn't asked or not not that the right question Mm -hmm. wasn't asked but because the question wasn't asked the information wasn't given out at that time
0: there's almost an esotericness to it as well right like okay so it's a waxing moon um, and it's the 31st of the month um, in summer. So I'll go to this table here. That's your answer.
1: Yeah. And, and, and sorry, sorry, David, just, uh, yeah, just to pick up on something else that Mark mentioned as well. I think trying to figure out why this decision was made around Bluetooth has also been really interesting because... Um, between the statements that the ministry of health spokesperson has given to various journalists who have been shared it with me. So I've seen like three journalists being given the same statement. Um, and between what Ashley Bloomfield said on Sunday, between what Ayesha Viral later said on Monday, there are like five or six different plausible explanations. that were offered up for why this Bluetooth tracing system was not being used. Um, and on, on the one hand, you know, if you're being the opposition, you can uncharacterize, uh, you, you can, Um, uncharitably say that some people were lying or that they were trying to cover things up. Um, In my opinion, I think that they were actually just ill-informed, that the information hadn't flowed up from the bottom, you know, from the contact tracers or from the right parts of the Ministry of Health to the people who are actually fronting um, to the media. Um, And that makes it really challenging for them to actually give accurate information. And, you know, they, they have to fill the gap by trying to explain from what they know um, but if they don't have the up to date information, you know, it's likely to be wrong. Um, and we saw that with Ashley Bloomfield saying, "Oh yeah, the Bluetooth system is being used. Um, it's being used where you know people have it turned on, and um, I'm pretty confident that it's being used." And the rest of us sitting there watching were going, "Well, we we know that it's not." So, uh, you know, I, I think he doesn't really, know.
0: That's really clear, right? Like he's not going to come out and say that um, just to obfuscate. You just don't stand up in a press conference and make that kind of statement.
2: Um, I'd like to just jump back to to something that Mark said about um, signs of democracy at the core. That's not quite what I see. I see community at the core, and it's a democratic community. Um, But community involves these squishy relationships and influence and... um, you know, and reputation and all all of these these kind of, you know, soft social things for swaying people rather than um, clearly defined statements in voting or or authoritarian dictates or anything like that. Um, And I think a lot of the influence that at least the people in this session have is very much in that squishy space of of none of us are in positions of authority within any of these organizations, but we are all reasonably confident that we are listened to in some fashion, which is it's a somewhat selective, really? Yeah, it's a somewhat selective experience. It's, it's a fairly, I, I suspect, relatively narrow slice of New Zealand that can say that. And it's an extremely narrow slice of the world that can say that about their governments.
1: I was going to say only one of us, I think, has a blue tick on Twitter, right? Okay,
2: I <laughs> yeah um I never actually asked for that. There's a whole backstory <laughs> there. Um, I'm not I'm not objecting to having it, but I was a bit surprised the day it appeared.
0: Yeah, really interesting, eh? Because you know, there's all this um, what you're saying is is soft squishiness, um, and that that brings me somewhat to something else I wanted to talk about uh, in regards to some of the um, what did you call them? graphs that you put on twitter david uh, how do you decide then what information to turn into data and then to present um, with the with a number of different audiences we know are, are here in new zealand who want this information what and the number of different people kind of creating this this data as well how, how do you decide what to do and, and what to do with it
2: Okay, as a personal statement, it's something interested to me. Of of the infinite things out there in this highly complex world, there's something I'm interested in. That said, um, I would say a lot of stuff I'm putting out there at the moment is to reassure people, is to explain how different things fit together because when you've got um, one data source, you've got one slice, but if you've got a whole bunch of different sources of data and they are telling you similar things, you can be much more confident about it. So when you look at um, Apple's mobile, cell phone um, mobility routing data, and it shows New Zealand is having a really deep lockdown, and you look at Google's. Um, community mobility data, and it shows New Zealand's having a really deep lockdown. And you look at the, the case numbers, and they actually drop. And you look at the locations of interest, and they crater at lockdown time. And you, you can go, okay, we can be reasonably confident we are actually doing something that might work here, because all of these different things are telling diff, um, similar stories. So that that's been in my mind a lot recently is is just showing people that
3: i really like that way of thinking about it because i think like definitely there's a couple of things there that i really noticed over the last couple of weeks i think a big one with just having multiple sources of information to validate what's going on and for me what the data that you just mentioned around the um the location and mobility data coming off the mobile devices um, that was really important because I think that that takes away this kind of politicized notion of like, what is a lockdown? What does quarantine mean? What is the sort of policy in this country or that country, you know, and like this whole thing in Sydney. Um, so I used to live in Sydney, right? So I'm kind of feeling it right now. It's very, very intense, but this whole thing of like a lockdown plus Bunnings, you know, it's like this cultural sort of trope. Um, and and it's, it, it's actually something very different going on. So that's where kind of language and the way that we talk about things and um, the way that discussions can take place can actually kind of distort the lens because you start comparing apples and oranges and it's really difficult to know. Whereas mm. when you actually see people have been moving less, people are are in less close contact, there's actually solid data that you can really show that there's some there's some pretty mm. strong evidence here for what what is going on. And I think if the community in New Zealand is seeing that, and I think there is signs that there is this kind of Loop and that people are very supportive of this because there's this confidence that we can do it and it, it can work. And it sort of, it really kind of fits more of this, I would say, the public health narrative than the kind of political narrative. It's um, it's it's really hard to explain, but that's it's a, a big thing that's really come out. I guess the other thing you were saying, David, about reassuring people, I was watching a whole bunch of conversations about trying to define what exponential growth is and it was just tearing my hair out <laughs> um but it really it really matters to people because it's quite scary like um and I think that makes a big difference so when people just kind of go um go to the media with with a piece of data here or a chart there and it's like oh it's exponential it's exponential and that actually has an impact um I, I was quite relieved
2: yeah, I was quite relieved that the day after the exponential discussion began to get traction, cases stopped going up. But because, however <laughs> you argue about what <laughs> exponential increase yeah. is, if it's not increasing, it ain't exponential increase. Yeah, exactly. No one
3: can deny that once yeah. it, once it gets to that point.
0: I think there's a really um, important point to be made there as well around those multiple sources of information about. The initial community trust that everyone else was acting the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so right from the start, we saw, you know, a, a lot of people not moving because everyone else was trusting everyone not to do that. Um, and then to be able to offer that post-action and say, look, it, it really did happen. Everyone goes, oh yeah, that's me. You know, um, it, it draws that that data from the past and helps to build consent into the future. Uh, with continued actions, which I think is really important, and I'm not, I'm not sure that the ministry um, or the those stand-ups have always delivered on. Um, and may, maybe an example of that, and I, I am I'm interested to to hear what you all think of this, is the now seemingly established routine of Ardern or um, Bloomfield or. Judith Collins holding up a piece of paper with a printed graph on it. Oh, Um, yes.
3: (laughs) I've been thinking about that a lot, actually, because... um, I think it's, I guess, from the perspective that we're talking about, it's not really data. Like, I sort of, I don't really use the term data a lot, but it tends to be the word that kind of gets out in public, and you have these terms like data journalism and whatnot, but it's really like insights, and when you're working in the field of so-called data, you're mostly talking about decision-making and insights that you can come from, and I feel like there's something else going on with holding up the charts, which I would describe as theatrics, right? It's yeah. like it's brandishing the data as a kind Surely of a totem. Not. <laughs> totem you know? It's a, it's a, it's, I mean, it's not like wholly that. And obviously, there is like some subs, sometimes substantial points that are being made. But this whole thing of like holding up the chart, it's, uh, it's really difficult to kind of reconcile that with all the sort of public. Um, decision making and demo- democracy stuff we're talking about here and I think yeah the more that it takes place the more stupid it's going to get like that's just my honest opinion and I think yeah. we've already seen that today right with the sort of stunts like today has just really pushed the boundaries in terms of um, p- political leaders and their behavior I would say but I yeah I just I, I don't know I mean maybe there's like it doesn't invalidate the point of you know decisions that you can make from the data but I just I would just roll my eyes when I see it um, okay whatever yeah. memes you know go have fun but it's like holding up the chart it reminds me of Roger Douglas holding up his little kind of whiteboard in the 80s
1: I think we still have a long way to go before it gets really silly because um, I, we, we wow. don't have a particularly long history of using visual aids in sort of New Zealand political know, speech right with yeah well that,
0: that,
1: was, that was the other example I was thinking of but the place where you want to go if you want to see where that leads is the us where um, visual aids are very commonly used um to in, in very very terrible ways um and you know that that's where it could all end up as sort of taken to extreme um certainly i agree with mark that like the use of the graphs that absolutely nobody can read and nobody can actually get any useful information out of is, is at that point not an informational tool it's just theatrics
0: yeah i think um <laughs> some of the initial ones, um, it was at least, you know, an up and down um, curve, like, look, it's going down and it's a very clear symbol. Um, But David, you had, you actually able to figure out where some of that data had come from one of them, weren't you?
2: Um, Yeah, we have rather been playing, spot the genesis of these charts based on on low quality photos of them. Um, So, yeah, I, I mean... The, the charts themselves are absolutely rhetorical devices, un, unquestionably, and as, as a person interested in quality engagement, using week-old data really was something that, that really it personally annoyed me um, with, with one of those. Um, however. Back in 2018, I did an analysis of all of the major New Zealand political parties and a whole bunch of overseas political parties, Twitter accounts, and the documents they were linking to. And all New Zealand political parties use the term data and evidence orders of magnitude, literally orders of magnitude, more than overseas political parties. It is an expected part of appealing to the New Zealand populace to talk about data and evidence for what you want to do. Far more so than anywhere else in the world.
3: That's so really
2: the question interesting. Is, is that rhetoric or is it Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, evidence? That's, 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 a, that's an open question, <laughs> whether it is rhetoric or not. And that's where us as a community pushing the discussion from, from our end makes a difference.
0: How much do you think, um, if at all, um, it, just in terms of your interest in, in communicating data, David, um, and, and displaying it in a way that is helpful and useful and easy to, to access for um, you know the, the New Zealand populace, how much do those that rhetorical use of uh, holding up a graph damage that engagement, or potentially damage that engagement? Does it risk switching people off?
2: Not not in the, the grand scheme of things. Individual instances are pretty minor, and poor use gets thoroughly mocked, um, I, I think it would be fair to, to say. There are, just looking overseas, there are far more damaging things that can be done by just spouting complete rubbish, (laughs) Um, complete unjustified, you know, no appeals whatsoever. Um, You can always argue about the interpretation of data and what values you are appealing to it. And those are absolutely genuine questions and involve core values and all of that kind of thing. And it's totally legitimate. But looking overseas, there are a lot of places where The data where what they are citing as evidence—I'm not going to call it data—what they are appealing to as evidence bears no relationship to anything one can find as having actually occurred.
1: I think that this is part of there being like much broader discussions about the value of science and like the importance that we place on science and evidence, and you know the way the, the, the way that science is seen as inherently good. And like, you know, if, if somebody says that they've done something and it's called science, then of course they must be right. And like it, we, it's, it's justifiable evidence. And if you add the words peer reviewed before then that increases its value even more, right? Um, and, and I think in this discussion about graphs, it's interesting to think about like, what is the value of a graph versus the value of a graph that is actually understood. Um, because the value of the graph by itself is already apparently non-zero. Right. It's, it's actually useful just to show you have a graph because it <laughs> implies that maybe you did some work, that maybe there are some numbers that, that there are some numbers to back up what you're saying um, and somehow gives you more credibility, even if nobody can actually verify what that graph is. Um, and I just think about all of these scenarios that have been you know, thoroughly mocked on on TV of like, um, oh, you know, we produce a report and the person's giving the speech and there's like a table with a 100-page report on it. And then somebody goes along and flips through the report and it's all blank pages, right? It doesn't matter what's actually in the report, they just want to say they did one, right? And the graph is kind of the same thing.
3: Yeah, so that sort of bureaucratic um, theatrics where the theatre and performance is actually kind of like happening on the meta level, where it's the production of the organisation is actually the, the theatre. I mean, that's the sort of pathological kind of state that these large systems can, can get into. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was sort of... I wasn't shocked when I saw that stuff happening a couple of years ago because I, I guess I had just gotten so used to watching the kind of downfall of, of the sort of political system in that way to be <laughs> like, oh, yeah, there's another level where it's just like, yep, there's like a report and it's empty. Um, but it's just... I. I don't necessarily think it's, it's always driven from the top of these organizations. And I think there's always this desire in political communication and kind of the way that dialogue and the adversarial sort of media approach, it really, it seeks to kind of divine this kind of single point that can be turned into this kind of for or against, or this side is arguing this, and then this other side is arguing that other thing. But sometimes you just simply have have these intractable situations where the kind of quagmire of the bureaucracy and the complexity of the information and the difficulty of like managing sort of situation for such large populations is just not kind of, it's just not possible to have anything rational come out of this sort of a system so it's just it's really really difficult to kind of get into it sort of points to these kind of these old problems uh sort of economics versus sociology or kind of you know like um agency versus structure type stuff it's just I find it really hard not to get tangled up in in that kind of stuff when I start thinking about sort of bureaucratic information flow and all that stuff but I I do think yeah I mean I agree with the points that um that the right things are getting mocked and that we are where people are critically analyzing what's coming out. We're not seeing people getting away with lying, which I think is like really key. Um, and I don't think people are lying too much. At least not. I can't tell, but um, it doesn't seem like it's kind of at that point. So, but I do think there are huge problems, and maybe um, there's maybe others here have insights into this, just around this um, this kind of question or conundrum around open data and like what what should be released in public? What is the role of people in the public to kind of investigate this data and find these patterns and really understand these complex things which are maybe not visible when you're kind of inside that structure or where your role is taking information and emails from one place and sending it to this other place and you just have no capability to really look at it as a system because you're just one kind of part of it. And, you know, the executive are, are the same. They have a role, they have a job to deliver. Information is flowing to them Um, and maybe members of the public have this kind of ability to zoom up and down the sort of scale or kind of look at things and combine things that are not possible with people inside the system but then you know you always hear these arguments about information can't be released or it's too sensitive and obviously we touched on the privacy issues before I don't know what are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, I'd like to to take that and just also jump back to the bit near the start where I was talking about information to data. A graph is a visual representation of some data. It's, it's a visual summary. And the data is information that has had a structure applied to it. So what that structure is and how valid it, it is to the um, question that's being addressed is very often something that someone external to the system is in the best place to go, wait a moment. And I think that's one of the really important things about Open data and the community having access to data is the ability to go. No, hang on, <laughs> you know, I, I, I question the 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 judgment here about using this information to justify this act. You might be going to do it anyway, and and but I, I question that this is a justification for it. Um, so I feel open data is quite important in that respect, but. I think it's also, more than anything else, it's the looking after people and what data should be open is, is kind of my my core one sentence, you know, what should be protected. Um, so, the, yeah, that's that's my particular
1: point. Yeah, and I think just to build on what you're saying there, Mark, I think I I mean, in principle, yes, open data is probably a good thing. It it helps people understand what the government is doing and what information is informing the government and therefore maybe figure out why decisions are being made. Um, But I I do have an issue with a general assumption that the act of transparency and the act of double-checking this work is something that society should be doing for free basically. Um, I'm in a you know, slightly privileged position in that I have at least a part-time role with the university and therefore have a critic and conscience role to play and, and somewhat compensated for that. But you know I'm only going to look at the, bit, the things that I'm interested in. Um, there's so many issues out there, so many things that university academics are not well suited to be looking at. Um, and it's one thing to put the data out there and say, well, here it is, go play with it. It's another to actually put it out there and say, okay, well, here are the right resources and tools, and you know, even funding to allow people to actually use that data in a way that leads to information that is you know useful um, and and maybe constructive for what the government is doing. Um, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why government often just releases you know the the, the briefing papers and the the results of data analysis rather than the data itself. Because um, just releasing the data itself potentially doesn't actually mean very much if there's nobody there who can actually do something with it.
3: What about the models? So we've had some controversies Mm. recently around, um, uh, particularly I think not so much with the COVID stuff, although there probably is some economic modeling that uh, people would like to see. Um, but I, I'm specifically thinking of uh, I think it was there was a kind of weird period before the Climate Change Commission had dropped its report and there was kind of tacit public knowledge of what was in the report. There were some preliminary kind of statements and results and the, they had this proprietary model, which my understanding of it was that it's basically an economic model that's coupled to sort of Earth system and climate parameters. And so there was a big dispute between um Some interest groups um, and and wanting basically wanting to see the the model. But um, and I thought that wasn't an unreasonable point to be made, but I thought it was really interesting because the Reserve Bank also has economic models, Treasury has economic models. So suddenly, if we are asking the Climate Change Commission to have all of this stuff public, shouldn't we also be putting that pressure on like all of the government, especially these kind of top tier agencies that have this incredible control and influence around the public service and around kind of fiscal and monetary policy in, in general um, and like a lot of that stuff is just like invisible and so it's not so much the data there because we can go get the data and statistics new zealand has a lot of the data maybe not as up to date as as some people would like but it's not so much the data it's like what is what is the data being pushed through and how do we know about that stuff
0: didn't treasury just recently admit that they basically rolled ice uh, as far as house prices go, that they were just they were just guessing um, what it was going to do um, post the... Uh, I think someone may have thing.
1: uncharitably just dis- described <laughs> sort of like probabilistic modeling as rolling the dice. But, you know, I mean, it's not wrong for them to do some sort of Bayesian or Monte Carlo or whatever, um, you know, modeling. Um, but yeah, you can describe that as rolling the dice. So um, maybe that's what happened.
0: But yeah, what, what do we think about um, having those models visible? Um, and, yeah, and where I- do they become commercially sensitive, I guess, is because that's something that's often also said, right, around data, um, especially around decision-making and and what the government is going to introduce as policy, um, is oh, we can't talk about that because it puts decisions at risk.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking about what Mark was saying and thinking about how so much of our sort of political speeches focused on the outputs of, of these sorts of systems. Um, but we generally take the working for granted that, you know, we just we just assume that people did their working correctly. Um, and I mean, we all know that statistics and stuff like that is, is, is in no way a certain art um, or a certain science. There is some degree of art involved in a lot of modelling. Um, and I guess the fear is that if you open up the models then you open up a whole new ground of criticism of relitigation of you know did you pick the right assumptions um, did you pick the right method uh, you, you've, you've made a carrying error here uh, so therefore all of this work is bunk you know you've just invested hundreds of thousands of dollars and spent six months working on this and and we, we, we reject it on the grounds that this assumption is wrong Um, and therefore everything else is invalid and therefore I don't have to engage with what you're saying. Right. Like I, I, I can understand that fear from the public sector in particular and from government that, you know, opening up the models opens them up to that type of criticism.
2: I think we do need to find a way to be able to have good discussions around this, um, that acknowledge the trade-offs between changing a model and making it incompatible with past behavior versus continuing on with existing biases versus correcting those identified biases post hoc and, and those those kind of trade-offs um, and those sort of things. But that's also another <laughs> huge area uh, but you know. Yeah, I just
0: A
3: lot of these questions and problems, are, these are the sorts of things that uh, scientists and people working in complex data fields, at like product development, which is a field I'm a lot more familiar with than science, but it still uses the experimental method. So those types of assumption questioning exercises happen all the time because you know, we, we do find out that six months later we made a wrong assumption and we spent a lot of money and it was a complete waste of time. And that's it's not a it's not a strange or weird or abnormal thing. I guess it's just like a question of kind of scale. And there's also this this public spending public money thing also kind of heats up debates in this very particular politicized way that can become very hard to have conversations about assumptions and about these kinds of, of issues that we're talking about because it's just it's just so cooked from this kind of this legacy of dialogue being in this particular way about this. Um, so I just, it's it's really difficult for me to kind of find a way in. Like, I feel like it's really important to, to have these discussions and, and, and ask these questions, but I just, it's really hard for me to see how it can take place.
2: I think that's what's been really interesting about the COVID response and data in it, and generally, is that it's been very much in a medical continuous improvement, non-judgmental, yes, these things happened, yes, we are changing them to do better, review, update, improve kind of model, rather than a political win-lose-blame situation. That That's just felt very different to me from other situations in the past. And I realise it's an emergency situation, but the, that that response is not universal around the world. So yeah. the, the, there's, there's some things going on there that maybe, hopefully, maybe we might learn in the future.
3: Yeah, I just wish we could use it for more things as well, like yeah. mental health and health funding in general. Wouldn't yeah. that be amazing?
0: Something I was really heartened to hear from Dr. Verrill in the house today um, was she made very clear that none of this is perfect because as soon as you're in the practical situation, the environment changes. Um, And she had an anecdote about it um, as well around a a defibrillator not working because the uh, sprinklers went off and she just had to deal with it in in the moment. Um, And you need to adapt based on that. And I don't think you often hear politicians in general being upfront about uh, the nature of any response, uh, let alone an emergency response, because they want to be able to give um, a straight yes, no, um, or uh, make it ambiguous enough um, that you, you can't tie them down. So to have someone come out and say, no, this isn't going to be perfect. We're doing the best we can, and so, are, so is everyone in the health system, uh, to meet um, the needs of the public was refreshing. Is it a communicative issue, do we think, to a large extent when we're talking about this stuff?
2: I think it's a um, cultural background kind of issue that the pandemic has been very much in the hands of of people with a public health background, whereas other crises in the past have not.
1: And I think that it is. One where even within the pandemic, you look at the issues where there is some science versus issues where maybe there is maybe the issues are less scientific. And that's where the sort of political rhetoric is focused. Um, so, you know, no, no, no opposition politician is arguing about whether or not COVID-19 trans- is transmitted by aerosols. But all of the focus is on whether or not the government could have bought more vaccines earlier um that's not a scientific decision that's you know an economic and fiscal one right and that's that's grounds for debate um so so i think that that may be you know people are defaulting to well the science is probably right let's not question the science too much i mean it's not you know universal that that is the case and there are certainly still people picking at the edges but um by and large it's a matter of okay well some debates are you know, not to be had um, because they're backed by science.
0: Incredibly privileged to be here in New Zealand with that approach from the majority of our elected representatives, eh? Mm.
2: And the majority of the community. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's... that's. You, you just look at the news of the, the, the fringy protests of the past few days and then the, the kind of turnouts and the, the disappointment from the overseas fringe at the, 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 the local showing. Yeah,
1: I, yeah, but I think that appeal to knowledge and appeal to science—it's like it, it's even present there, right? Because mm-hmm. the anti-vaxxers always—they're not anti-vaxxers for um, cultural reasons or for core values reasons. They always tell you that they're an anti-vaxxer because they've done the research and their mm-hmm. research is better than your research, right? Like it's—they're still appealing to to knowledge.
2: Just on this um, New Zealand appeal to knowledge, appeal to understanding, appeal to data kind of thing that we seem to keep circling. Um, I'm just reminded back in the late 1800s of the mechanics institutes, the working class, uh, skilled working class societies that essentially were upgrading the skills and knowledge of members by, you know, um, inviting in speakers from the university and things like that to, to give things and you know that they, they were working class organized communities of learning um, and that was to some extent very foundational in a lot of the eight-hour day kind of debates. Those groups were heavily involved in those, those sort of things as well. So there's been a core of that for, you know, that you can look back on and construct a history linking to it.
0: I wanted to do one final whiff around. Um, just kind of get each of your thoughts on. What, what is one thing, and this is a bit um, tabloid, uh, what, what is one thing um, that you think the government could and should do better uh, with the way that they're communicating? Um, the information or the data um, to the general public or or via community channels. Um, If we want to go from, actually I have no idea how these things are set up on your screen, so Andrew, if you want to kick us off, that'll be clockwise for me. uh,
1: There could be one thing I would want government agencies to understand that one-size-fits-all messaging is not appropriate when you want the whole country to do something. Um, And you know, just, just, just trying to do mass advertising campaigns in order to get people to do something like use the app um, is, is inherently inequitable and exclusionary to certain parts of the population um, and is ineffective at achieving like 100% uptake. It is practically impossible to do that. Um, and, and I really wish that they would, instead of doing that sort of thing, like go to the target communities that are going to be affected, go to the communities that they know are going to be at the fringe, invest time and resource into working with those communities rather than sort of top down sort of just telling them on TV that this is what you should do, but actually getting to know and understand them and understand why they might not want to do something um, and, and, and to you know, help take that feedback you know, to improve the way that things are being done but also to actually build those relationships so that those messages can be conveyed more effectively. Um, and, as, and and I guess part of the problem is that because you've got all of these different agencies and they've all got conflicting messages and they all want to say their own thing. Like something that I found really interesting is in the public sector, people think of like, oh, well, you know, that, that community has a breach of trust with something ministry of social development did. So us and ministry of health, that's, you know, we're not them, you know, they'll be fine with us. But people in the community, they just have a relationship with the government. Um, and and one part of government stuffing up means that the relationship is ruined for everyone. So, you know, I, I do think about could there be more effort around the government as a whole engaging with various communities and then being able to, you know, funnel different types of messages from different entities, you know, together, rather than doing this in such a decentralized way. Um, so, so overall, the point is go work with communities rather than just doing a you know, TV, radio campaign.
0: Mark, one thing.
3: One thing. I don't think I'm going to have something that's quite as articulate and (laughs) ambitious and and just really well thought out as as that on the spot. I think my perspective is probably really just addressing a particular niggle or something that just always frustrates me every time I see it. And I kind of know almost or before it happens. It's just having people enrolled in these ministries and these organizations specifically with skills around data modeling being able to turn around um being able to push data publicly in a clean way i guess is the easiest way that i would summarize that like i really i really want to see more emphasis on on data and apis and structured kind of schemas as like a part of the comms strategy not just a thing that technical experts care about, but like actually is core and intrinsic to the way that information is published online and baked into the kind of protocols and policies and procedures that basically you, you, you don't just throw a spreadsheet on, um, on your website or stick a PDF up there. Um, you don't just change the reporting lines without putting a change log out there saying what specifically between two different reports is the same and what's different. And you, you put information out there in structured way that's kind of normalized and that people with the tools to understand it can just work with it and they know what to anticipate. And it just doesn't waste people's time and it doesn't cost huge amounts of money. And it's just getting the right people into the right places to make the right decisions.
2: David. I'm going to. I heartily endorse everything both Andrew and Mark have just said, both very articulately, and I'm going to scale it down even more. I think in the next few months, in a pandemic, in terms of information that individual people can work with that is critically important helping with the overall response the single most important thing to me that is not being handled well is the delivery of locations of interest to the public the data collection is very and delivery is very messy and the ability of people to identify where our locations of interest is very limited, and these are the only places where it is possible to be infected with COVID in public places. This makes more difference to the overall spread of COVID than, than anything else, um, at least in my opinion. So I would like to see location the delivery of locations of interest information cleaned up and better communicate it. i just
1: make a quick shout out to Ben Talkington. Yeah, I was going to do the yep. same. You know, today, yeah. he, he, you know, he, he's been trying to manage this bot that pulls from the locations of interest feed. Sorry, this is for people who might not know. Um, and, and the way that the data is being presented on the website just keeps changing. And there's a data feed that also pres- supposed to provide it in a more machine-readable format that is also changing. It's actually now out of date. It's not... Synced up with what's on the website um, because they're. I think they said that um, low risk places aren't in the data feed, um, and you know Ben just kind of had enough trying to do this on top of his normal job. You know he's trying to do this because he thinks it's the right thing to do to make the data more accessible to people, um, and because the Ministry of Health is just changing things almost every day. Because to be fit to the Ministry of Health, credit. Mm they're trying to do it better, right? Yeah. They are trying to improve, but because it's not in that same standardized format, Ben's just had to give up. Um, and, and, you know, it's a hard decision for somebody to make to kind of give up on a project like that, especially when it's a little bit public and you kind of feel like other people are relying on you. Um, and so, you know, big credit to Ben for making that decision um, and and to putting his energies towards something that is probably going to be more useful um, and better both for him and for the people around him and for the rest of New Zealand um, and not just sort of continuing to plot on like many of the rest of us would probably do because we're too stubborn to give up.
0: Hey, thank you so much, all of you. It was a, um, yeah, I hope uh, people with decision-making capability are listening to that um, because I think, I think there are a lot of um, things that could be been made better about uh, the response and the way that um, communication occurs. Uh, from the government to the public about the pandemic. But we don't often get incisive critique. We often get either broad brush stuff or we get focus on very narrow um, kind of slices. Uh, like you were mentioning the the vaccines uh, delivery earlier. Andrew has been one of the, the key things um, of the last couple of weeks, for example. So really good to get some discussion about some of the, communicative aspects, and, and what can be done better um, with specifics attached. Yeah, really great. Hey, if people want to find each of you online, David, where can they find you?
2: Um, thoughtful NZ on Twitter. <laughs> and that's the only place you're likely to find me. <laughs> uh, for you, Mark?
3: Uh, so you can go to my website, which is maetl.net, M-A-E-T-L.net, and my Twitter handle is the same. Um, and I've also, I'm have also, i actually also on um, the distributed Mastodon web under the same handle if you want to jump off of the Silicon Valley platforms and talk on a, on a
0: totally other space too. Great. And how about you, Andrew?
1: Yeah, my Twitter handle is Andrew Ty Um I had to change it because it used to be Andrew Meows. And then I had some students who made fun of me and I was like, oh, all right, I'm going to, to change it and make it my name now. Um, and my email address is publicly available. Um, I've been getting plenty of emails um, from people but it's been good to, you know, engage with people who aren't on Twitter um, and, and lots of really interesting stories coming through that way as well.
0: Hey, amazing. Thank you again so much for coming on to have this chat. Um, really good to have so many similar but different viewpoints. Um, you'll uh, bring different skill sets to, to the conversation. Uh, thanks, too, to our audience for, for uh, listening in uh, to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, uh, give it a share. If you think there's something useful, um, tell your elected representatives. Um, and jump on the website 1 of 200nz we try and have content up there uh, with some frequency uh, and we're always hoping for more subscribers thanks again everyone we'll catch you next time
2: the Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays, no